Paul Shari, author of the new book, Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, a.k.a. Chip Wars for AI, here today to talk with me about power and AI. Paul is the vice president and director of studies at CNAS. He started his life as an army ranger and then spent a good chunk of time in the Pentagon. Full disclosure, I am a fellow at CNAS. I'm curious to explore the levels of war and the types of impacts you think that AI could potentially have. So you had this really cool uh, sort of intro of a particularly interesting tactical impact where there was some model that DARPA made to create like the greatest fighter pilot ever. And yeah. there was something like a head-to-head -head gunshot, which, you know, sounds like something that only Tom Cruise could pull off. Let's start with the tactical level of war. Paul, what is a head-to-head -head gunshot and why can only an AI dreamed up by DARPA do it? Yeah. So one of the really exciting things that I came across in researching the book was this DARPA Alpha Dogfight competition, which was a DARPA competition a couple of years ago to train an AI dogfighting agent to fly an aircraft in a simulator against a human. And uh, spoiler alert, the AI won, crushed the human pilot. So in the finals, the winning AI agent, so all the AIs competed against each other, winning AI agent came from a previously totally unheard of company, Heron Systems, beat out actually Lockheed Martin in the finals. And then their AI agent went head to head against an experienced Air Force pilot. And the AI won 12 to zero. So human couldn't get a single shot off. Now there's a lot of caveats that apply, like for those you know, in the pilot community, they might be listening, maybe, maybe, maybe feeling those reactions, right? It's a simulator, it's not the real world. And the dope was of course working actually and taking these algorithms and now putting them into real world aircraft. And there's always this, challenge when you've trained an AI in a simulator, in a, in a simulated environment, porting it over to the real world. So there's some, you know, some hiccups along the way, but they're working on it. There's actually a big development in December where DARPA was doing some real world testing in F-16s using some of these algorithms, kind of the next generation of them. But the really interesting thing about this competition wasn't just that the AI beat the human, it's that the AI fights differently than the and that is, to me, a really interesting insight because it's one that we actually see in a whole variety of other settings, like in chess and Go and poker and computer strategy games like Dota 2 and StarCraft, where the AI agents are not just better than people, but they fight in different ways, um, which I think has some interesting implications for warfare. So what the AI dogfighting agent did in this case is it did these head-to-head -head gunshots, or what, what are... Pilots call forward quarter gunshots in the sense of the forward quarter of the aircraft. And when the aircraft are circling each other dogfighting, there's a split second where the aircraft are head to head and there's a, a split second opportunity to get a shot off and to shoot the other aircraft while they're zipping past each other. Now, human pilots don't do this. These shots are actually banned in training because, hey, they're super hard to pull off. It requires like superhuman levels of precision to nail the split-second opportunity, much easier, as you can imagine, for pilots to get in the 6 o'clock position behind the aircraft and then get a shot off. But also, when the pilots are racing each other at hundreds of miles an hour, if the pilot, the human pilot, is trying to maneuver to get the shot off, they risk a mid-air collision. And you want the pilots to be focused on like not colliding their aircraft. Well, the AI is unfazed by any of those facts. So the AI can certainly 
make the shot while avoiding a collision. It can shoot with superhuman precision, which is not surprising. But the really wild thing about this is it learned it entirely on its own. So this is one of these really interesting phenomena that we see with AI systems where it's an emergent capability, wasn't programmed in, but these AI agents are trained in a learning environment, in this case, using reinforcement learning. Uh, this one was actually trained in a competitive league, much like OpenAI's OpenAI 5 that was used for Dota, where there's a whole league of AI agents competing against each other. And it just learned this, this tactic. And I think it's a great window into some of the opportunity that AI systems have to change warfare going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting thinking like, how this applied to chess, right? Where like you do crazy moves because you could calculate 50 moves out, which just humans, you know, it's not, even even Magnus can't go that far. But thinking about it sort of in 3D space with, with you know, marvels of engineering, also when you get to layer on the idea that like you don't have a little, you know, bag of meat in there who's like worried about G-Force, it just opens up these like th this possibility space, which, you know, humans piloting things can't hope to ever get to. Yeah. Well, and in fact, if you look at the alpha dogfight trials in the simulators, the aircraft are pulling like nine G's for two minutes in this dogfight. Now that that's fine for the human pilot in a simulator because it just sit there, but you can't do that to a person, you know, in a, in an actual aircraft, they're going to black out. And of course that's an obvious advantage to AI is that you can, you know, an AI dogfighting agent could pull maneuvers that would kill a pilot that a human couldn't handle. Um, so that opens up new opportunities. But the really interesting thing to me, looking across all of these different games, and this was an area I was, I was really excited about in doing the research for the book, was when you look at AI dogfighting agents, look at AI agents playing chess, go, poker, capture the flag games online, you know, real-time strategy games like StarCraft and Dota 2. There are actually these commonalities in ways that the AI agents play differently than people that hinted some of these really interesting possibilities for AI systems in warfare. Some of them are obvious ones like superhuman precision and speed, but that's the kind of thing that you would expect. It's not surprising. Um, that's what you know, something like automatic braking does on an automobile, for example. And so in these like computer strategy games like StarCraft, it's so good, of course, they have to tone it down because... If you allow the AI agent to you know, go to its full potential there, the AI agents actually could dodge enemy fire in these computer games. Like they're, they're yeah. effectively invincible. But even when you pull some of that away, you see these differences that what militaries would basically call command and control, right? So even if you dumb down the, the sort of physical, if you will, attributes of some of these systems, you look at chess, for example, both the AI and human have access to the same pieces. So it's not, sometimes like for militaries, we think about things like, you know, AI will enable robotics. And then what are the robotic systems that we can build? They're going to be different. That's a big advantage. But a lot of these AI agents, like in chess or Go, it's really what militaries would call command and control. It's the information processing, understanding the environment, and then making decisions. And we see huge advantages from AI systems. So like one of the, one of the interesting, you know, things about pulling 9Gs is like these machines weren't made for that. And you start introducing big reliability concerns with, you know, the current force structure. If you're just taking, you know, the crazy, you know, brilliant ideas that AI can come up with and sort of putting them in 
platforms which were not made to accommodate them you know basically just like what you were saying with starcraft where like the game was not built for people to be able to click at 700 clicks per minute so the games so you know the, the, the whole system ends up breaking which i assume would ultimately happen even with your f-35 after 15 minutes of you know going 100 miles an hour in the tightest circle possible so you know maybe going one level of warfare up i guess or staying there you know how do these increased bandwidth and, you know, synchronicity for command and controls end up feeding back into what sort of programs the U.S. and other militaries should be thinking about buying? Well, we're already seeing that now with um, certainly the use of drones and then new types of systems that AI is opening up opportunities for or autonomy, you know, you could say is opening up opportunities for things like loyal wingman aircraft that are cheaper. There may be more special purpose. But with things like attritable systems, where there's not a human on board, we could take some risk with it. We're going to make it lower cost. We're going to treat it as maybe expendable. There's sort of this interesting gray space between an aircraft domain, between, for example, like munitions and aircraft that drones open up this opportunity for that I think there's a lot of opportunity for militaries to start to explore and exploit. And then exists in other areas of warfare as well. If you look at ground vehicles, for example. People who work on engineering for ground vehicles talk about the iron triangle of armor, mobility, and lethality. So you can slap on more armor onto a tank, but it makes it heavier. That's going to reduce mobility, make it harder for it to move around. You know, now you need stronger bridges that it's going to cross. You can put a heavier gun on, also going to reduce mobility. Or you can trade some of that off, right? You put on a heavier gun, keep the mobility. Now you got to strip away the armor. And if you now take the person out of that vehicle, you can blow this iron triangle apart because then you could say, well, how survivable do I need it to be? Maybe I strip off the armor and I build something that's cheap, it's expendable, it's an expendable robot scout, finds the enemy, and then I call in an artillery strike. We see examples of this with drones in Ukraine, right? Cheap, commercially available quadcopters and hexcopters being used to scout out for the Ukrainian armed forces, find Russians, and then go ahead and call in artillery strikes on them. And it's pretty low cost and it's extremely effective. And it's, it's, I think, indicative of this broader trend we're seeing that not only do robotics and AN autonomy enable some of these like new lower cost distributed sensors and then information processing, but the, the sort of wider effect is to make a more transparent and more lethal battlefield. It's harder to hide and it is easier once you've been detected for the enemy to put precision-guided weapons on you as you saw more intelligent systems. And that's sort of like a paradigm shift we're going to have to adapt to over time. So sometimes people get wrapped around like, you know, is the tank dead, long live the tank? And I think that's that's like one symptom of this broader phase change that I think we're seeing in, in warfare. You know, speaking of sort of Ukrainian MacGyver stuff, the, the, the sort of incredible ability that the Ukrainians have shown to sort of repurpose, use all these different sources of, of, of weaponry and, and get them and, and sort of squeeze the most out of them. You have this great line of, of in the early days of the Pentagon trying to stand up the Jake, which was their sort of like centralized attempt to like get with the program on AI. A quote, protective response from the bureaucracy. Uh, so let's some. Um, uh, it's, it's really great for like me and you, Paul, to talk on a podcast about how you can take lessons from StarCraft and put them into the, um, uh, you know, force structure. But like, how, how hard is this? Yeah. Well, you know, that was, that was uh, I believe, a quote from Brendan McCord, who played 
an instrumental role inside the DOD in, in helping to stand up the Jake and get the initial approvals to do so. And you describe kind of this protective response from the bureaucracy or what people in the Pentagon will talk about, like the antibodies come out to basically anything new. And that's just a natural response because almost anytime you create anything new inside a bureaucracy, you're taking away something from someone else, right? You're encroaching on somebody else's turf. So not surprisingly, that happened in this case between uh, then Undersecretary Michael Griffin and then Deputy Secretary uh, Shanahan. They were able to get this done and get the Jake over the hill. But it's, it's a natural thing, and it's a real problem, I think, for military innovation in peacetime. Uh, you, you do get a different phenomenon in wartime where you can get accelerated patterns of innovation when you have a very specific operational problem that militaries are trying to solve. And we saw that during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan with things like counter-IED, for example, the development of counter-IED technologies like jammers or MRAPs. You still have some antibodies um, inside the traditional bureaucracy in the army, for example. But I think it's a real problem in peacetime because you don't necessarily have that sense of urgency, that need. And oftentimes, you know, the default setting is militaries that are protecting their own bureaucratic interests. They're going to protect you know, their, their existing force structure. And a lot of things that are new are going to come at the expense of that. The, the poster child for this really was the naval aviation community strangling the development of a stealthy drone coming off a carrier. That was called for in the 2006 Quadrennial Defense Review. And here we are, you know, almost 20 years later, doesn't exist. We actually built it with the X-47, built a prototype, flew it off a carrier. People said it couldn't be done. And the U.S. military did it. And nevertheless, the Navy community succeeded in saying, like, we don't want this thing because it's going to, you know, it's going to be expensive. It's going to encroach on crewed aircraft or manned aircraft. Every drone you put on a carrier deck, you're taking off an aircraft with a pilot in it. And that's a real obstacle, I think, to innovation going forward. So, you know, it's not just money, right? It's also no sort of personal identity. Right. And you, you yeah. talked about the, uh, the the example of the pilots and you like you like had to apologize beforehand to the pilots before <laughs> before telling the story, because like, look, it sucks to spend 20 years of your life getting good at something. And then all of a sudden some engineer coming in and telling you that your skills aren't needed. And honestly, look, like that's kind of how I feel a little bit using ChatGPT at the moment. I've spent a lot of my life learning how to put pretty sentences together. And this is now about to turn into a commodity. And like, it's really uncomfortable to kind of think about and grapple with that reality. But like, look, I can figure out other things to do with my life. If I have, you know, since I was seven years old, dreamed of being a fighter pilot, and I finally jumped through all the hoops Hey, you know, have my 15 years of, of, of flying jets and I'm a, and I'm an admiral in the Navy and I have some, you know, some punch say, Hey, like what you invested your career into and your entire identity into is no longer relevant for future conflict. Like that's a hard thing to stomach and it's understandable. Yeah. Pilots take a lot of heat for this because, you know, the AIs are coming for them first We've seen this over the last 20 years with, you know, remotely piloted aircraft or uncrewed aircraft, whatever term you want to use. Although the term itself is like a fascinating reaction, right? Where originally people were talking about unmanned aircraft and drones and the pilot community was like, no, 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 we're still pilots, we're just remote, remotely piloted, right? Because these identities are really important, right? But 
But ChatGPT is a great example where I think a lot of white collar workers thought like, oh, I'm going to be safe. You know, the automation is going to come for the truckers before it comes for me. And uh, no, no, a lot of white collar jobs are super vulnerable now. You know, I'm, I'm like, you know, look, working in the think tank. I'm like, I don't know a lot of what people look at some like chat GPT and they'll say, well, you know, it's kind of vague sometimes and it kind of makes stuff up a little bit. It's like, I don't know, like I'll go to think tank events and, you know, <laughs> assist some of that. You know, it's like, so, so I think, you know, people are maybe right to be concerned. I mean, I think the interesting thing here is um, a lot of times people's reaction is, well, the AI can't do my job. And the answer is almost always going to be the AI can't do everything that a human can do. And there are some jobs you could probably like completely get rid of, you know, going to places where there's no parking lot attendant when you drive out of the parking lot anymore. There's just a little robot and you give your credit card to it, right? But in a lot of cases, the AIs can be used to offload some of our tasks. And I think we want to lean into that. I think we want to lean into that actually in the commercial sector using tools like text generators. What is this good for? You know, yeah, it makes stuff up. That's a problem. But like, what could we use it for uh, rather than throw up our hands and, and scream and run away? And in the military space too, like what are the things that we could be offloading to machines? Because there's a competitive environment where if we get this wrong, we've seen historically countries pay the price. They can lose a war and some countries don't ever recover, right? The Spanish Armada was defeated and that's it. That's, the, that's it for the Spanish Empire, right? So there's a real cost to um, sometimes falling behind in military innovation. So we've done tactical, we've done operational. Let's go up to strategic. This is, you know, some of the most far out stuff in yeah. your in your book was, you know, hypothesizing about the ways in which AI could potentially improve decision making around what your liar general is for, where to where to, you know, have an exercise and, you know, how to set up alliances and what's going to be best for deterrence. I don't know. It's easy to pick holes in that. So maybe, Paul, like start with the bull case about, you know, what you could potentially see models uh, helping out with at that level of war. Yeah, I think you can think about a couple of like phases as we see AI integrated more. So you've got maybe the first phase of, OK, we start seeing things like these AI based image classifiers that are being used today. Project Maven's over five years old now. So you know, using AI for these very discrete tactical applications or like these AI fighter pilots. Then I think there's a broader question of, let's say we go a couple decades down the road and we've seen AI seeded into every crevice of military operations. What does that look like in aggregate? So we saw the industrial revolution led to all of the creation of these machines of war, tanks and airplanes and submarines. We saw the industrialization of war. What is the cognitization or intelligentization of war, to use the Chinese term, what does that look like over the long term? And I think, you know, this is, this is admittedly super speculative, but I think one way to think about this is that the industrialization of war enabled the creation of machines that were stronger than people for various physical tasks. We offloaded physical labor to machines. And with AI, we're offloading cognitive labor. And so you could take the intelligence of systems and sort of dial them up in every aspect of military operations, whether it's sensors or networks or platforms or munitions. And just like the Industrial Revolution increased the physical scale of warfare, the amount of physical destruction of iron and firepower that militaries could bring to bear. It seems conceivable that AI might do something similar to the cognitive aspects of warfare. So increasing the quantity 
of information that's being collected and processed, accelerating the tempo of warfare. And we can see examples of this in gaming environments. So when you look at AlphaZero, for example, it's trained on chess, uh, it's trained on Go, without any prior human data, right? So entirely through self-play. So it learns this sort of alien way of playing chess or Go. It can do things like look holistically across the board better than expert human players can. It can engage in multi-axis attacks better than people can. It can engage in long-range planning better than people can. And that's like a hint at some of, I think, the potential for AI, if you can imagine the, you know, what the end state might be of the intelligentization of warfare over the next several decades. So, Paul, this is my crazy pit. And this came from having just done a show about a new J. Edgar Hoover biography and sort of seeing what's been happening with Bing's Sydney is a one button COINTEL Pro where you say, you know, Mr. AI, could you please sow personal dissension in like the ranks of my adversary and convince everyone that everyone else is sleeping with their husband or wife and that, uh, you know, they're never going to get their promotion and the government's out to get them. And like doing that relative to dropping leaflets, it's, it's horrifying. Uh, the potential of that sort of thing, because, you know, Microsoft, good for them. They sort of shut Sydney off. Like, not everyone's going to do that. And like, we already have spies running, you know, every country already has spies running around the world trying to do this exact thing. And having the sort of like social engineering information operations aspect of war be like basically free and like infinitely scalable is you know, almost even crazier than what people talk about when they're most worried about like, oh, deep fakes on the news and whatever. Like that's, that's like, okay, like half of America already believes QAnon. Like, I think that ship has sort of sailed. But like having like a personalized information operations attack that is like, has all the data you could possibly find about a single person and constantly coming at them from like every direction. I mean, I don't know what that does to a force, but nothing good. Right. Well, I mean, I think you, you raised this really interesting point about these generative models and text generation, for example, but also probably true for image generation or audio or video, which is the ability to personalize this content, which is, of course, exciting in some ways, right? So, you know, the Spotify of the future, maybe creating tailored songs just for you that you're interested in. Uh, there's a lot of like you know, positive uses, but there are these nefarious uses too. And a lot of the initial reaction to some of these generative models is the potential for them to just flood the zone with AI-generated spam, which we're already starting to see. I don't know if you'd see news about this sci-fi uh, story, right, that, you know, sort of community that basically said they had to shut down submissions for science fiction stories because they were getting flooded with a generation of uh, ones that were AI-generated, right? So that's, that's a world that we are fast entering into, but Right on the heels of that is the ability to personalize it in a way. It's like the ultimate spearfishing cyber attacks on steroids to target you. And, you know, things like audio generation, I think, are, are really troubling. When you think about simple things like, you know, you pick up the phone, you hear a voice on the other end of the phone, and you identify who you're talking to based on that voice, right? If you're a friend or a loved one, and that technology to do voice cloning and synthesis and that's that's gone that exists 
you know, we've already seen some applications. I talk about one in the book where that actually was used in a case of fraud for a bank transfer. But I think we're likely to see more of that kind of not just widespread spam, but the personalized attacks that are, you know, troubling. It's going to be difficult to deal with. And it's, it's personalized and it's automated. You know, we've been talking for 25 minutes, Paul, like you're, you're like, I got you dead to rights for your audio and your video. But, but it's, it's one thing to have me have to sort of like, you know, be the puppet master. And like, I'm on the phone with your IT manager asking for the password reset, but it's like, I can tell a model to be like, get under Paul's skin and it will just do. And I do that for a thousand people. I mean, the, the, the sort of scale and power that's going to be behind this sort of thing, because, you know, at the end of the day, like the, the, the thing about spear phishing, like the irony is that everyone talks about, oh, cyber vulnerabilities and like you got to patch your systems or whatever. But like like half of the biggest hacks started with someone sending their password to someone else. But like being able to automate that of not having to have, you know, little analysts like go on Twitter and look at what Paul's favorite sports team is, but just having that be something you you just scale. I mean, people are just like trust is going to be a very different thing in that in that world. I don't know. It's scary. It's exciting. It's scary. Yeah, it is. And you know, so one of the things I I did in researching the book was try to figure out okay, like what is this world that we're moving into with synthetic media, where we're seeing this proliferation of all of this AI generated media and all of these opportunities for mischief. How do we handle this? And so we looked at the world of synthetic audio, which is much more advanced than video, for example, where, you know, these video deep fakes right now, they still have some problems. You know, you can, frankly, if you know what you're looking for, you can detect a lot of them with your, with your naked eye. Audio easier to do and much more sophisticated. And there's certainly audio that, you know, we would not notice um, is synthetically generated. And so I talked to people in the synthetic audio space, got to test some of these. Uh, one of the ones that I got to use was this one that does real-time voice cloning. And so you talk into a microphone and the AI hears what you're saying. And then in, in a you know, matter of milliseconds, faster than actually the human brain can interpret the difference, spits back the same words, same tone, same inflection, but in somebody else's voice. Yeah. So I can talk in your voice or someone else really wild experience to put the headphones on and to, to hear my words in someone else's voice. And then, you know, what I talked to the company about was how do we, how do you deal with this world? And I think for chat GPT, for example, we're starting to hear about detectors. People are, oh, we're building detectors. What I heard from everyone who works in the world of synthetic media is in the long run, detectors are not going to be able to keep up because, you know, in the short term, sure, there are methods where you can use to detect synthetic media, there's going to be telltale signs. But in the long run, those detection methods get rolled into the next generation and the technologies get better and better until it's basically indistinguishable from reality. And then you've got to go to things like watermarking, both for synthetic media and for uh, you know, real world content to try to verify what it is. But when you get to the world of open source, that's really hard. So we saw this with Stable Diffusion, where the baseline model that Stability AI releases has got, one, it's got a content filter in it, and two, it's got watermarking. And as soon as it's open source, it's the first thing people do, is strip yeah. out the watermarking and the content filters. And so I think that's going to be a real challenge when we think about how do you build this information ecosystem where we can look at media and we can verify authenticity 
Um, it's going to require putting in procedures in place. I don't think it's impossible, but it's going to require a lot of effort as a society because the tools to generate basically indistinguishable AI-generated media are going to be so widely available. I mean, it's not, it's, it's as a society. Okay, so the next question I'm going to ask with my, uh, so Descript, the program I use, has an AI generation thing, which you guys have probably heard a little bit when I try to like clean up sentences and I'm lazy and don't want to get my microphone out. But anyways, this is what, this is how good it sounds like with like not the latest and greatest technology. Okay, so I will put in. This will now be me speaking with AI. It's interesting cause it's not really society. It's like the firms and the regulators. Are we gonna end up in a world where you have the FBI tracking down unregulated model creators just like they do on the dark web for like tornado cash and stuff? What's the sense of the direction that like, you think policymakers should be thinking about bringing regulation to address some of these challenges? Well, first of all, I, I do think it's actually about society overall because if you look at things like facial recognition, for example, We've seen in America this sort of messy give and take of public debates about how we should use facial recognition for law enforcement. And you have this multiplicity of actors. You have state and local and federal authorities, the private sector. You have you know, big tech companies like IBM and Amazon and Microsoft that they have a lot of reputational risk at stake. They've all backed out of facial recognition for law enforcement. You have startups that might be more willing to take risk. You've got members of civil society, grassroots movements among citizens, the media, all of you know, these actors play a role in shaping how the technology is used, which I think is net to the benefit, right? I'd much rather live in a world where power is decentralized and we do have all of these different voices, all these different stakeholders weighing in on this than, you know, living in China, for example, where it's like the party says ultimately this is what's going to happen and you don't have the ability for like, you know, ACLU to file a lawsuit against the FBI about, you know, some some use, for example. The challenging question that you're asking really is, like, where is this headed? And I think one of the most promising areas for thinking about AI regulation is this, this concept of compute governance. And I, I talk a little bit about at the end of the book, kind of looking at some of the trends we're seeing in AI and speculating where, where might this be going in terms of the future of AI as a field but also the future of AI power. And one of the most remarkable things is this incredible explosion in model size and increasing amounts of compute and data being used to train these ever larger models, like these large language models, like ChatGPT, for example, where they're using hundreds of gigabytes of data, um, thousands of GPUs running for weeks at a time in some instances. And the pace of growth in the amount of compute that's used for training it's really incredible. Uh, 10 billion fold growth over the last decade, uh, or last 12 years rather, you know, a increased doubling every six months, every 10 months for the largest models like ChatGPT. And so that's pointing towards a world where compute becomes this ever more essential resource going into training the largest, the most capable AI models. And you begin to see this division between the haves and have nots. We're already seeing this today, where a lot of the compute-intensive research is being done in industry, academia. They just don't have the access to the compute resources to stay in the game. But I think it's going to increasingly have effects on geopolitics. That's what basically the Biden administration's export controls on chips they're trying to do, right, is now taking compute access to AI chips as this key point of leverage over access to AI capabilities. And I think that's, you know, kind of the first 
you know, shot in what is likely to be an increasingly significant competition over compute. And it's one where the consequences, I think, are going to be really significant because compute's going to be this um, really sort of like barrier to entry, the cost of entry into the most capable AI systems. Paul, how do you feel about like Atoms for Peace AI edition? What, tell me more. What, is that, what does that look like? So the idea, we're, we're, we're workshop. Uh, but the idea is um, uh, if, if compute really is your ticket to the 21st century and America wants to like win friends and influence people around the world, having, you know, sweetheart deals and access to uh, sort of both, you know, subsidized versions of the latest and greatest models, as well as compute to sort of you know, do research for, you know, your sort of development organization in, in Nigeria or, or uh, Guatemala or whatever, that this, that this ends up being like, a, like a, a real quiver in America's sort of global diplomatic toolkit, which could also have some strings attached, just like Atoms for Peace did, where, you know, you'd promise only to like make nice models, not ones that would um, do giant information operations attacks against your, you know, your enemies. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yeah, or worse things, right? We can imagine yeah. all sorts of nefarious uses, right? Um, I mean, I think one of the things that's, that your question is getting at to me is, how should we think about compute going forward, given these trends we're seeing in compute growth. Um, I think thinking about it as something like, you know, enriched uranium is not a bad metaphor. It's kind of helpful in a number of ways. Because right now, we've had this paradigm shift in Washington, at least, where people are thinking about semiconductors, about chips, as a foundational technology for economic productivity. So, and, and you know, frankly, it's sort of like unrelated phenomena, like the chip shortage in the automotive industry, and all the concerns about supply chains during COVID kind of really helped get this to the attention of policymakers um, unrelated to these issues, but helped kind of get on people's minds like chips are important. They're important for the economy. We want to think about you know, access to them. But what we're talking about with you know, sort of large amounts of compute as really a strategic resource that's dual use is, is sort of a, a step beyond that. It's a little bit how we think about supercomputers today, uh, that we, you know, we do think about control over supercomputers because they are dual use. They could be used for things like you know, simulations of nuclear weapons. And so we're concerned about access to supercomputers. And is there some level of compute where you start thinking about like, okay, now this is a dual use capability. It has beneficial uses, also all sorts of nefarious things that people might do with misinformation or cyber attacks, and we start thinking about that. How do we limit access? But how do you also, you know, there's a carrot approach like you're talking about, right? Where you say, um, hey, if you're going to use this in a way that's safe, that's responsible, if we can verify that, we're going to help provide some of these acts, uh, access to some of these resources. I think that's, that's all beneficial and the kind of questions that we should start be asking about how we think about how do we regulate AI in this world that we're headed into. 
where we can see with things like ChatGPT, these AI models, powerful, uh, but to do some weird stuff. And we might want to control, you know, how they're used. So if you take as the premise that, like, figuring out how to inject AI into your economy is what's going to be, you know, a central driver for productivity growth over the next 20 years. You know, what do you think America has to grapple with, understand, accept, and, you know, potentially reject as it, you know, navigates between our, like, skill and charybdis of, you know, like, the incredibleness that these tools potentially have to offer with the, you know, economic dislocation, the sort of, like, social confusion. I mean, we're still, we still haven't like figured out what the hell to do with social media um, 15 years later. Like the, the promise and peril of what's facing us with this seems to be, you know, orders of magnitude more important to get right if we want to have a, a, a sort of th thriving country in the decades to come. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about AI as bringing about something like another industrial revolution, we certainly saw during the industrial revolution that countries rose and fell on the global stage based on how rapidly they industrialized, based on how rapidly they imported and used this technology like you're talking about. Russia fell behind Germany and Great Britain as they industrialized faster than Russia. And I think like there's this deep-seated anxiety among a lot of people in the United States, especially in the national security community, is like, are we Russia here? You know, like, we want to think that we're Germany and Great Britain, that we're, we're the ones at the lead, but maybe we're not. And when you look at things like Facial recognition, for example, the widespread deployment of it in China versus what we're seeing in the U.S. I think these concerns that you're raising about, well, is our open society a disadvantage, um, feeds into that. And I think, you know, this is one of the things that I tried to dig into in the book and try to better understand what are the sources of AI power. And so if the Industrial Revolution shifted the key metrics of national power and now things like coal and steel production, manufacturing capacity become these key inputs of national power. Oil becomes a geostrategic resource. What does that mean in an era of AI? You know, getting beyond sort of these like kind of bumper stickers like data is the new oil. What do we mean when we think about, you know, what might have these potential advantages? I concluded at the end of the day that data, computing hardware or compute, talent, so human talent and institutions, the organizations that bring in AI technology and adopt it are the four key battlegrounds, if you will, in a book title there, that countries are, are grappling with as they look at AI adoption. I actually think the U.S. has tremendous advantages over China in talent and computing hardware or compute. And the other areas of data and institutions, I think it's a relatively level playing field. But I think if the U.S. harnesses those advantages in human talent and in computing hardware, the U.S. actually can, can stay ahead of China in ways that China really can't compete with. We've talked a little bit about the chip side of things and the, the chip export controls, I think, really illustrate the key role that the U.S. has in controlling access to AI hardware. But the talent side is equally, if not more important, which is that the U.S. is the destination of choice for AI scientists coming from around the world, including from China. And that's something China simply cannot compete with. I mean, right now, China's best AI undergraduates are coming to the U.S., to further graduate studies, and then over 90% of U.S. Uh, Chinese-born PhD students studying here in the United States, artificial intelligence, they stay in the U.S. after graduation. And so that's a, 
you know, the U.S.'s role as a magnet for global talent is, I think, ultimately a competitive advantage that if we harness that, we make it easier for people to come here and stay here, is a huge advantage over China. The institutions one is the one I keep coming back to because yeah. I think pretty soon we're going to have more capabilities than we know what to do. With. And that question of adoption and what was our what was our fun line earlier? The antibodies coming out in the bureaucracy. Yeah, this sort of, right. you know, and it sort of pr pretty soon we're going to have more capability than we know what to do with and sort of how the antibodies are managed across society and, and sort of from the micro level of firms you know, not figuring out how to adopt it and sort of going to regulators to say, no, we need a human in the loop, even though like you really don't. And that being sort of a, a barrier to growth all the way to the to the national level of like sort of change happening too fast. And maybe there is I mean, there probably is a threshold where change is happening too fast. And like, you know, society can only take so much disruption without, you know, falling apart at the seams, which is sort of what we saw with social media, right? I mean, it took 15 years, right. but then we had January, we had Donald Trump and we had January 6th. And, you know, I don't know how much of that is, is Twitter versus, versus anything else, but like there, there's some causation there. So man, it keeping, keeping like the train somewhat on track while still allowing the train to triple its speed is a challenge both in the US and in China. And I think, you know, we just saw some news this week that, you know, on the one hand, you're having this really interesting dynamic in China right now because like everyone saw ChatGPT freaking out. You have the Beijing municipal government. Everyone go check out Chinatalk.media. We just had a, everyone subscribe to the newsletter. Um, we just had a, um, uh, a, a, an article out looking at, on the one hand, you know, the Chinese, Beijing municipal government is like, we want to make a chat GPT right here in China. We're going to have all these like great subsidies and, you know, we're going to make it, we're going to make it awesome for you. On the other hand, you have an article from Nikkei just yesterday, we're recording this on February 23rd, um, saying Chinese government is not going to let anything like chat GPT come on anytime soon. There are going to be all these regulatory uh, hurdles because the information space is really important to them. And, you know, that <laughs> that has been prized over almost everything um, for, um, you know, really for decades now, and particularly in the era of Xi, where the sort of realm of acceptable discourse is, is narrower and narrower. And, you know, Baidu says they're going to release a model in March. But like, look, if the model, if the model says something, you know, inside of the Great Firewall, that's obnoxious. Yeah. Like, what's going to happen to those engineers who made that model? Nothing good. So both systems have their own hangups, which are going to manifest in really important ways as both societies try to try to sort of harness the upside of what these new technologies are going to be able to provide. I mean, I think like how China responds to ChatGPT is going to be an interesting test case for this question of how does China balance, you know, sort of the benefits of innovation and leaning into the technology with the political sensitivities of the you know regulatory environment in China because it's like ChatGPT is sort of tailor made to say something bad, right? Like if it's you know saying the wrong things here, it's certainly going to run afoul of censorship in China. And the question is how do they navigate that? Um, I don't know a lot of questions. I mean, I've been following all of the, the responses and the reactions people are having in China and the reporting on it here in the U.S., including from China Talk, which has been great, to try to follow this. You know, I don't, this is not the first time that we've had chatbots say something that runs afoul of the party inside China. 
So a couple of years ago, Microsoft's Chowise chatbot had said in response to this question, what is your Chinese dream? My Chinese dream is to go to America. Jesus Christ. Didn't go over well, right? So they had to, they got to pull it offline. It got, got banned. But, you know, so like, it's, it, it'll be interesting, I think, to see how companies navigate these. On the one level, the, these bots are churning, they're spitting back things that are not, they're not cut and paste. They're not regurgitations of what's in the training data, but they do reflect the views that are in the training data. So if you trained it, for example, on censored data, then it should say things that are politically correct. Doesn't mean that people might not be able to push it, though, and manipulate it in ways that we've certainly seen already with things like Bing. You know, I wonder to what extent just layering a censorship filter on top of it would solve some of these problems, right? So if there's just a whole list of banned words, you can't say Xi Jinping and you can't say America and you can't say Winnie the Pooh and you can't, you know, use certain data, you know, you can't say Tiananmen, like that solves their problems or it's harder. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how they navigate this. Yeah, sort of like the latent space. If there's an easy way to do it where you just do the hundred words or whatever, like, sure. But my, and no one knows the answer to this question, but like, if you sort of like, I think there's a trade-off where you kind of like lobotomize the critical thinking piece of these models and they end up just being less powerful because you may have to do that if you don't want it to sort of talk back or think critically about the sorts of things that you're not allowed to talk back about and think critically in China. Beyond the model, beyond the sort of models and the sort of information domain stuff, there's still a really open question about the level of sort of creative destruction that the Chinese government is going to be comfortable with these models doing because like, look, full full employment is very important, but like the way that these models have an impact and, you know, ultimately, you know, generate growth and increase productivity is by taking people whose jobs that can be automated and automating them and sort of like allowing, you know, one lawyer to do the work of five lawyers and having the other four sort of figure out other things that are, you know, the best use of their time in an AI enabled world. And she really talks a big game about this, about sort of wanting China to lead to, to sort of lean into the to the you know great changes unseen in a century from technology or whatever. But like it's easy to say that and invest in R and D. It's much harder where you actually may end up having to sort of put your country through the same thing that happened when um, China was performing SOEs, where you had these enormous disruptions, which ultimately, you know, ended up in a much better place with a much more dynamic economy, but still was enormously sort of socially impactful and like, you know, led to Tiananmen, right? Even even though the U.S. the U.S. will have to deal with with, with a similar thing through electoral politics, but but the party is going to have to, you know, think about the changes that they're going to have to grapple with from the perspective of, of, of state stability, where there almost certainly will be trade-offs in maximizing the, the sort of positive impact that AI can have with the sort of near-term, you know, beness and satisfaction of the people. I mean, I think this question of like, who is able to run faster in terms of adopting not just AI, but other technologies, although I'm inclined to think AI is going to be a big and impactful one, and whether there's a benefit to open or closed societies is, a, is one that's likely to shape the course of this century. We'll see. My instinct is, and I realize I'm, I'm biased, I'm sitting here in the United States, you know, I'm in Washington, is I do think open societies have a major advantage in this competition. 
And I don't think it's sort of like the old trope of like, oh, well, people can't innovate in closed societies. It's just not true. We've clearly seen within China over the last 20 years that's not true. They can be world-class leaders in technology across a range of areas that can innovate even without uh, having the same kind of personal freedoms that you have in other places. I, I think one of the things that I've been struck with over the last couple of years, particularly watching different governments respond to COVID, is that I just think in general, you can get better decision-making in open societies. You have more decentralized power. This sort of authoritarian advantage that people maybe even argued at the start of COVID, the Chinese Communist Party had, look, they can shut everything down and they can control everything. And people in America are like completely uncontrollable. People are running around, no masks on, breathing on each other, not listening, you know, injecting each other with themselves you know, with bleach and weird things. When you fast forward a couple of years and you look at where we've been over the last year, a lot of the party's policies don't make a lot of sense. They don't look good. And you see this, not just this phenomenon where as you centralize decision-making, maybe you just get worse decision-making, but also in so many cases, they're forced to make choices that they're doing for reasons of political control because they've got to maintain the party staying in power. And that's going to throttle other things, whether it's tech innovation, it's people expressing their concerns about things like COVID lockdowns. They're just, I think democracies are more resilient towards because the losing party and a democracy, you know, it get hung out in the square, right? In fact, if you're, you know, if you're in power in a democracy and then your party loses, which, you know, is going to happen every couple of years, you get like a, you know, a plush lobbying gig where you get to go on cable news and, uh, and then you even have to do the hard work of legislating, right? So that, I think, trade-off does lead to a lot of brittleness. And I think America's likely to have, you know, significant advantages over the long term. Yeah, here's the thing, Paul, is like it's contingent. And that may be right in 6% of the futures that we live in. But like, look, 2020, the, 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 the Chinese COVID model was way better than whatever the hell the U.S. ended up doing. And like, yes, you know, Taiwan figured it out. South Korea figured it out. But like, we didn't. And, you know, looking back to the to sort of the early Cold War about like systems competition, right? The world was entirely convinced that, well, first... I don't know if you could have gotten this sort of state mobilization that thinking about sort of uh, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, like I don't I don't know if like you put American governance in Moscow at the time and like you would have ended up. I feel like we would have folded at some point in the in the in the fall or winter of 1941. And then for the 40s and 50s, like the cons the global consensus was that across left and even in the right fair amount that like the Soviet Union really had something going for them. And in the sort of industrial paradigm of the 40s and 50s, where you just had to, like, make a lot of steel, like having a an economy to make a lot of steel was a real was a real advantage when it came to dealing with the mess that was the U.S. system. So anyways, Paul, I hope you're right. But I'm uh, <laughs> maybe I'm a little less confident than you are. Well, I'm optimistic, but it, but it's by no means like an open and shut case. We wouldn't be discussing it. Right. And the, yeah. I mean, the amazing thing that, that China has done over the last 20 years is they've broken this, this dictator's dilemma, right? Where dictators basically had to have a choice of open up your economy and you let the free flow of information and goods and your economy's going to liberalize over time or you lock everything down and you end up like North Korea. And China managed to thread that needle in a way that, you know, is, is pretty path-breaking. They've been able to have really unprecedented economic growth in human history, all while maintaining 
the party's ironclad grip on power. And so, you know, this by no means is this contest like settled. I would not give that impression at all. I think we've got a tough, you know, tough challenge ahead. I guess we should do a little U.S.-China relations. In, you know, in part of your book, uh, I talked about this recently on another podcast. You sort of t- did the story of Microsoft in, um, uh, in, uh, in China. By the way, Brad Smith, if you're out there, you got an open invitation to China Talk, where, you know, there's a lot of international collaboration on this stuff. I'm curious, you know, we, we, we heard the news earlier this week that the U.S. was warning China again to supply arms to, uh, to, to Russia and basically join a proxy war against the U.S. Um, I, f- I feel like we're heading down a darker timeline than we might have even been a month or a month ago. And even like the balloon stuff, I feel like you can get over in a way that you couldn't if um, uh, if she really decides to support Putin in the, um, uh, in the war in Ukraine. So I don't know. What's my question? Like, how bad? Like, how bad does this get? And maybe like if that ends up happening, what does the setting like a war aside? What does a darker timeline in a you know more aggressive earlier Cold War 2.0 end up doing for the sorts of variables that you uh, you pointed out in the AI competition in your book? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we've seen the floor in U.S.-China relations yet. One of the things that's striking to me, and this was just out of the most recent visit with Blinken, was every time over the last maybe five six years. That's a major diplomatic overture between the U.S. and China, whether it's at the presidential level or, or the secretary level. People are always like, OK, this is going to be a chance. Maybe we don't fix the relationship, but we kind of put a floor in it. We kind of freeze things. Things don't get worse. And then every time the beating happens and it like goes bad and everyone's like, I don't know, like things look like they're headed in worse places. And then- it's like that last of us scene where like the like, OK, you're we're at the floor, but then like we have the zombies crawling out of it. Yeah, it's just, it's like, good. It's, no, I, I don't think things are, are likely to stabilize anytime soon. I mean, I've certainly been struck by the directionality in Washington is one direction when it comes to the U.S.-China tech relationship, and that is towards decoupling. Now, it is a selective decoupling, it's worth pointing out, um, because if you look at like broader U.S.-China trade, it's at, at high, very high levels. But within the tech sector, Washington has been steadily whittling at all sorts of different connections between the U.S. and Chinese tech ecosystems, whether it's on talent flows or chips or other areas. And, of course, China, for their part, also really is interested in uh, some element of this decoupling as well, because they are concerned about many of these vulnerabilities that they have relying on foreign technology. And I I don't think we've seen the end of that. I think that's going to likely continue for at least the next several years. And in part because just the there are you know, pretty significant geopolitical differences between the U.S. and China about where we see the Indo-Pacific region, you know, certainly Taiwan, but also broader issues like South China Sea headed. And what we see is kind of the, you know, a, a, a reasonable status quo to maintain going forward, as well as globally. And I think there's very competing visions between the U.S. and China about where we want to see the region and the world go. Paul, I know you got you you got some young kids running around your house. I'm curious if you sort of have any thoughts or if you played with these tools with them or like have any thoughts on how, you know, you you hope education might evolve to sort of incorporate some of this stuff going forward. Yeah, my kids are little, so I'm, I'm mostly trying to pry them away from the screens, you know, reduce the screen time. But I have been struck with things like ChatGPT, the knee jerk reaction of people is like, oh, we can't use this. 
it's bad. I was just talking to somebody yesterday who was talking about someone they knew who was a student, used it, and then the school caught them, punished them, and you know, is that the right paradigm to have going forward? I, I, I kind of feel like probably not. You know, we, we should be trying to lean into these tools and say, how can we use them to do what we're doing better? You know, are we going to say we don't use typewriters, we don't use word processors, we don't use spell check because that's de-skilling those skills like cursive? You know, I had to learn cursive as a kid. I don't use it anymore. Or we're going to lean into these tools and say, okay, this gives us opportunities. How do we harness this? Use it in a way that's sensible and responsible. And maybe that does shift some of what people are doing. But I think the people that are going to be most successful are those that find ways to use these tools to increase their productivity, to upskill themselves and their abilities. That's going to be true for companies. And that's going to be true for countries in the global competition over AI. So when you, when you go through history and think about like the greatest geniuses, often they have a parent who taught and basically quit their job and full-time, like John Stuart Mill, his dad was like, I'm going to turn you into a project. I'm going to teach you eight languages by the time you're seven and you're going to change the world. And like he did. And, you know, it's not with everyone, but there, there are some really uh, sort of powerful studies about how one-on-one -on -one tutoring is just so much more effective than being in a classroom with 20 kids. And, you know, as, as someone who is not super excited to, like, spend my adulthood, like, hanging out with a six-year-old and teaching them how to multiply and divide, like, I'm really excited for whatever, you know, education startups that created, get created on top of, on top of the software to just be the greatest tutor ever for literally anything that children or adults are interested in learning about. So, you know, not everyone has great teachers. Not everyone's in great school systems. Most like almost everyone isn't. And having, having a sort of like, you know, hopefully like, you know, safe and like aligned, uh, you know, guardian tutor angel on your shoulder as you're sort of exploring the world for the first time and figuring out what it is you're passionate about just strikes me as just such like a wonderful thing that, you know, assuming that the U S and China don't blow themselves up in the coming decades, I'm really excited to see, to see the world figure out uh, how to help people flourish. So yeah. I was reflecting this morning and I was remembering the first time I was in China talk. Oh, you know, we got to talk about this. So, um, uh, yeah. So there's like 250 pages of like China content in this book, which we didn't talk about because yeah. we've talked about a lot of the themes on other shows, but I do want to give you credit because for someone who's not like a China scholar, I actually think you've done this the best, you know, I think you've done like China tech better than any other book that's tried to do China tech. So hats off to you, Paul. Thank you. I feel like you would tell me if I did not. So I really appreciate that. Oh, yeah, I would. Well, no, I'd be polite. But um, uh, the other thing, yeah, so so we first met in 2019 um, when I was at a Kwai show. People generally, when they, you know, go to China uh, and they spend their week, they might, they sometimes get a column out of it. But like, you got like a few hundred pages, um, you know, getting to sit down with like iFlyTech and MegV and whatever. Yeah, yeah. Did you just like email these folks? Like what was the process for setting up that research trip? All of the above. Um, so there were folks that we, we had connections with here, like Microsoft, for example, who uh, opened the door to Microsoft Research Asia, 
who was, you know, really open and, and, and we had a great discussion with them and toured their facilities. I went with the incredible Elsa Cania and she uh, knows everyone and helped open the door to like really interesting folks. Like I talk about in the book, it did a meeting with Chinese scholars, academics who studied military civil fusion in China. Fascinating, fascinating conversation connecting with you. We did some things through the World Peace Forum. The iFly Tech was kind of a sideshow from that. And they were, you know, they were incredibly open, more open than I would have thought uh, they would be, or maybe it was even a good idea for them, but it was really eye-opening for me. Um, and there were a whole bunch of things like that where it was just, we sat down with Chinese military officers and, and talked to folks from the PLA working on artificial intelligence. It was really fascinating. So anyway, so for more on that, everyone get the book. It's really good. Paul Shrey, thanks so much for being part of the channel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to, great to talk to you.